You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, I want to invite you now, as is our custom, to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we will pick up where we've left off there. Uh, we will do our best to, to connect uh, the place where we are this morning and, and the gospel of Matthew to the journey we've already begun. Uh, and so uh, I'll give you a little bit of a, a heads up uh, as to kind of a recap. If this is one of the first times you've spent the morning with us, then, then this is our custom. We open the Bible and just simply as the best we can expound upon what we find there and let it begin to tell us all, all, uh, all that we believe that God has in store for us to hear. And so we're going uh, to do that this morning as we've been walking through the first book of the New Testament and also the first of the four Gospels, that is Matthew. Now we'll hear a little bit more about him personally, even this in the next couple of weeks, as we're introduced to uh, him in the story. But up to this point, he's been introducing us to Jesus. And in the last chapter, he's been introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people that don't get Jesus. And so this morning, we're invited to, to consider all that Jesus is. And if maybe if that's a, a new practice for you, I'm so, great, I'm so grateful that you're here. Join in. We're, we're, we're asking those same questions. Who is Jesus? Is this Jesus all that he's cracked up to be? Is he this one that people have made him out to be? Why are people still talking about him? And so uh, we've been introduced to the nature of Jesus in such a way that we're to contemplate what it would mean for us to trust him, to follow him, to, to heed his teaching, and then to trust in his work on our behalf. And the way that Matthew wants to help us get Jesus, as it were, is to introduce us to people that don't get Jesus. And we'll meet two of those people. Now, up to this point, after... After, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest (laughs) sermon ever recorded, uh, is Jesus teaching authoritatively, and it wraps up even at the very end, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were shocked, right? So so even now, I would say, if if what you see today, um, and maybe not if, just when what you see today is shocking, when you hear the words of Jesus and they are jarring, in many ways, that's when you know you've actually heard the words of Jesus. In many ways, if, if you hear the words of Jesus and you're like, sure, and it doesn't shock you or jar you, I would, I would push on you. You probably aren't actually paying attention to them. But it says they were astonished at this teaching. But the reason that they were astonished might not be what you think. It says the reason they were astonished is for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So these were holy uh, religious scholars, these scribes, and, and they were, the, in that sense, the authoritative teachers. And yet it says that Jesus was speaking as one who had power and authority. And you're meant to ask, well, tell us more about this power and authority of Jesus. And so last week we were introduced to a couple of chapters where we see the power and authority of Jesus on display. First and foremost, to heal. And his power and his authority, remember this, in many ways, this chapter and the next help redeem power and authority for you and for me. Because for you and for me, power and authority has almost certainly been wielded against us. We probably all have wounds, if not open wounds, from, from, from when someone with power or authority wielded it selfishly or carelessly or unlovingly, such that now we, we, we kind of walk with a limp as a result of it. And so, so we're really quick to hear the words power and authority and immediately think they're bad or awful. But they're neutral. That is, they're just a display of, of, of whoever is wielding them. And in this case, we get this redemptive view of power and authority. Because what did Jesus do with his power and authority? 
And after all, he gave orders. He gave commands. But, but what were the most stark commands that he gave we saw last week? It was for, for a person to be made clean, for them to be healed, for them to be made whole. And so now we get another picture of the authority and power of Jesus. So beginning in verse 18, we'll read just a few verses. Verse 22, as we consider the power and authority of Jesus. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I pray that we would be astonished by the words of Jesus and the power that he demonstrates as he speaks. While last week we saw a demonstration of the power of Jesus through his healing, his restoration of that which is broken, not ultimately for its own sake, but if you'll read with me, even the last verses of that passage, we read in verse 17, this, that is the this, the healing that he was doing was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52, that he, that is the, the picture of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, the prophetic prediction of how God would work to redeem his people, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus uses his power not to crush or to destroy. He uses his power to carry things for people that are otherwise powerless. He uses his power and authority to do things for others that they could not do for themselves. And so he healed, he redeemed, he restored these people. Even just by a word, these people were healed and made new. And so we see the purpose of his healing, the purpose of his demonstration of power is so that we would see him rightly and understand that Jesus came to do something for us that we could otherwise not do for ourselves. And so, the first thing he does to demonstrate his power, quite literally, did you hear that? He gives orders. <laughs> I told you, it's jarring. To follow Jesus is to separate from the crowd. In many ways, up to this point, we should already know that what Jesus is doing involves this. After all, if you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches a profound lesson that, in the end, the way to life is narrow, and few people follow it. The way to destruction is broad and easy. And so you might say, well, what do you mean it's narrow? In, in, what, way is the, in what way is the way of Jesus narrow or somehow difficult or not for everyone? And we find here in these, in these handful of verses two case studies, two living parables to illustrate it. And so I, I want to simply take his word seriously. Uh, I want to if it's okay with you, I want you to begin to allow us to hear Jesus, allow Jesus in his words to show us something about ourselves and about himself, and then just trust him with whatever we find. So what comes up in light of Jesus' teaching then is that we're in, invited to respond and live a certain way. In fact, the verses 
at the end of chapter 7 say that if, if a person hears these words and doesn't respond to them rightly or doesn't do them, it's like a person who built their life on, on sand and when, the, and when the storms come, it washes them away and, and great is the, the fall of that house. Whereas those who hear his words and put them into practice are like those who build a house on firm foundation such that when, not if, but when the storms of life come, they remain standing, they remain standing firm. And so Jesus' words give life, they give meaning, and and we get a picture here now of what it would look like to hear those words and not heed them, to hear Jesus and miss him. As I shared before, we're introduced to a couple people who don't get Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowd, so think of the living parable we're invited to be told here by Matthew. There's a crowd of people. Crowds of people, we've already been told this a couple times, that crowds of people are following Jesus because after all, he's the greatest show on earth at this point. He is, he is performing miracles, he's teaching authoritatively, this is something to behold. But the crowd, apparently gathering around him, it says that, his, it says that uh, to the crowd, or evidently to some, he said, gave orders to go over to the other side. And so we're meant to wonder, well, who's he giving orders to? And then the parable goes on, that is a, live, a living parable, a picture of what it means to trust God's word trust the words of Jesus. It says that he gave orders, namely to his disciples, to come with him to the other side. Well, the other side of what? Well, evidently there was some body of water here that were close to, and they crossed this water to go over into another place. That is away from the crowds. Think of how what he's doing here is a picture of what it means to literally, and I use that word very carefully and specifically and classically, to literally call people away from the crowds. To give orders These people are to follow him away from the crowds because to follow Jesus is to separate from the crowd. The way is narrow that leads to life. This really is a difficult thing to do that we ought not take lightly. Now, after he gives orders to go over to the other side, it says, a scribe. Now remember, as I even just read to you, we've already heard of them before. They were introduced to us by Matthew at the end of chapter 7. There were religious teachers, but evidently they didn't quite teach with the authority. It was, it was, people were astonished by this as Jesus. So a scribe, verse 19, came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, make note of this word for the rest of, for the, rest of, the, uh, for the, rest of the, the book of Matthew. This is going to come back. That is that there are other people who call Jesus teacher, and that's typically a way of of Matthew kind of tipping his hand that these people don't get Jesus. Namely, if you think of Jesus only as a teacher, then you won't follow him. You might be willing to learn something from him. You might use him to get something, but you would never sacrifice for something. And we see a principle here as he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus calls him on it and says, "Uh uh-uh, foxes have holes, birds birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then, boom, skips to another, another character in the story. So it's as if a person came and said, I love what you're teaching. I want to follow you. And Jesus immediately provoked him, pushed him. I believe, that's to, I believe that's to illustrate something powerful in this first section. Jesus is more valuable than your things. Jesus is more valuable than your comfort. Jesus is more valuable than anything you could experience in this life. He really is. And so this first, this scribe came to him and said, hey, you're a great teacher, but notice, if you only think Jesus is a teacher, then you'll hold on to your stuff. 
You won't realize that like verse 17, he came to take and carry something that we could not carry ourselves. Because after all, no one would lay down their life or sacrifice themselves for a teacher, for knowledge. And so knowledge and religiosity can become actually a hindrance to seeing Jesus for who he is. So he gives orders for these people to accompany them, but but the first person evidently, now, now get the picture, right? He's like, let's go, let's get away from the crowds, let's separate from the crowds, let's cross this body of water. Now that's an important phrase that he gave orders to cross the water that's going to be important in the next couple of weeks. It'll come back, so just make a mental note. Jesus said, let's go across the water. But you get the picture, it's like, we're going to go across the water. And you imagine these two people are like, I want to come. I want to go. Jesus, I'm in. Right? He felt, you could see, like, it's like the fear of missing out, boiling out in these two, right? Like Jesus is in a crowd of people, and he's like, all right, guys, this has been great. I'm going to take my, my crew, and we're going to go over here. We're going to get some time away. And, and you can see those people going, I want to go. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Whatever you want, Lord, I'll follow you. But evidently, there was something going on that Jesus reads right through and, and pokes at immediately. He says, actually... And he it makes reference to a, a comfortable place to sleep, right? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, that is Jesus, the one who is fulfilling the Son of Man prophecies of Daniel, the, the picture of, of this, this human one that, that God has taken on flesh to become with us and like us and for us. This one has nowhere to lay his head. After all, Jesus, at the time of his death, owned nothing. He didn't need a lawyer to execute his will, to disseminate his property and assets. He had none. He didn't have a spouse. He didn't have children. And his best friends had betrayed him and left him. In fact, what was left of his assets were, were simply gambled away by the people who had executed him. It said they rolled dice, cast lots, to figure out what to do with this man's cloak. Of course, they were wondering what to do with his clothes because they had hung him naked on a cross. And he's saying, if you really want to understand what it's like, then if you really want to know what it's like to follow me, then you need to know what I'm here to do. I'm here to give. I'm here to sacrifice. Now, we don't know what happens next, but Matthew leaves it silent as if to presume that what Jesus said prevailed. He says, I want to follow you. I want to come with you. And yet, Evidently, there was something more valuable to this man, and Jesus goes right after it. Evidently, this man wanted comfort. You can imagine, maybe, maybe he said more. Maybe he said something like, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. Oh, by the way, I have to be, I have to be back home. I, I got to make it back tonight so I can go to sleep, right? Or you can see like him saying, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. Hey, where are we going to sleep tonight? You know, by the way, after we get across this body of water, where, is there, like, is there are accommodations for us? You know, do I, need, do I need to pack a bag? Like, these might, in fact, be good things to ask, good things to consider. But what Jesus does is he recognizes there's actually something under the surface. These aren't just evidently superficial requests. Evidently, this is the state of the man's heart, and Jesus goes right after it. Astonishing, right? And he's saying that to follow him means that you will, in fact, have no, you will, in fact, have to sacrifice the thing that you currently value the most. 
Now, he's not saying that to follow him means that you will never have any comfort, that you will never have any security, that you'll never have any joy in this life. Many of us who are following Jesus now know that's the case. God is merciful, and we have common graces that we get to enjoy, like air conditioning, right? It's not that we'll live a life of total misery. It's just simply to say that following him means we give up any demands for comfort and security in this life. That he's not saying that to follow him means you will have no comfort at all. He's saying that to follow him means that you will give up any demands or rights to it. And this person says, I want to follow you everywhere. But notice, evidently, there's, there's at least a few things wrong with it. One, it's overconfident. He's saying something as though he is God, right? This is surely going to be the case. I will follow you wherever you will go. We saw in the epistle of James just recently that that James actually says, don't do that. In fact, if you're going to make plans for the future, he says, say, Lord willing. Don't look at the future so confidently as though it's in your hands, but instead say, Lord willing. And it's as if Jesus hears through all of these issues this man is bringing to the table that in many ways means he doesn't really see Jesus for who he really is. And Jesus, it's as if he says, like, do you even know what you're saying? You hear echoes of this later. In the gospel, right, where people, where, where, the, where the, the apostles are sitting around going like, all right, Jesus, I'm going to sit at your right hand, and he's going to sit at your left. We're, we're duking it out. Who's going to get to sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? And Jesus, same thing, like, do you even know what you're saying? Do you even know what you're asking? Are you really going to drink the cup that I drink? So the first person is overconfident. And he says, foxes and birds have more security and comfort than the Son of Man. Are you sure you really want to follow in my footsteps? Practically speaking, following Jesus will demand that you ask, where will I lay my head? Where will I rest? Principally speaking, the topic of our comfort, the topic of our own sense of peace and rest comes to the fore. Maybe if I could just say this as practically as possible. Again, principally, this is about comfort and rest. But practically, where you lay your head has something to do with Jesus, believe it or not. Now, whatever that means for you, maybe that means like where you live. Uh, maybe uh, this, this is, I share this all the time, that many, many people, like there's, there's two good reasons to move anywhere, uh, work and family. And Jesus is going to systematically disassemble that and say, have you ever thought about me? And so most people are like, hey, I'm going to go work here. And then last, they're like, I wonder, I wonder what Jesus may or may not do while I'm there. And then they're mad that they feel alone and cold and dry and like, man, I'm not experiencing, I'm not experiencing the rest and comfort of Jesus uh, now that I've done this thing. I was like, that was because that thing could never give you what you wanted, right? After all, I mean, you, you, if, if you're not going to be obedient and faithful where you are now, then it doesn't matter where you move. You're going to go be a faith, unfaithful and disobedient there. We're meant to think very critically here that where you lay your head actually has something to do with Jesus. Don't live anywhere accidentally. Don't rest anywhere or find comfort anywhere accidentally. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us the man's reply, but he leaves the silence for a reason. And then he moves immediately on to the next one. He moves immediately on to the, the next topic. So look at verse 21. After we get this picture of a person who's like unable to leave his creature comforts to follow Jesus, 
even though he's bold to make a, a commitment, a brash statement, it says in verse 21, another person, another of the disciples. Now, don't read too much into this. Remember, before Jesus is resurrected, the people who were called his disciples are just simply the people who are practically following him. That is, they're following along, seeing his miracles, learning from him, sitting under his teacher, teaching. After he is resurrected, what it means to be a disciple is changed completely. And then what it means to be a disciple is a person who has wholeheartedly given themselves to Jesus, trusted him completely, and now following him and living on mission as a result of what Jesus has done. But it says, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So if the first one was too quick, this person's too slow. The first one was like, hey, Jesus, I want to go with you. Don't leave me. And this next one apparently hears Jesus' orders to, to go with him and says, hang on, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. And holy smokes, listen to Jesus. Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What a shocking, jarring, and yet poetic picture. So if the first person that we're introduced to here that does not get Jesus helps us to realize that Jesus is more, uh, that Jesus is more valuable than our things, then the second person we're introduced to here teaches us that Jesus is more valuable than our people. Jesus is more valuable than your things, and then the call of Jesus here makes us to consider Jesus is more valuable than your people. The first person that evidently misses out on Jesus, misses out on Jesus because there's some sort of creature comfort that he can't take along with him, that he would have to lose in order to follow Jesus. The second person evidently misses out, and boy does he miss out because Jesus otherwise was just being brutal, misses out on Jesus because he evidently wants to finish some other things before he does them, before he follows Jesus. You can love Jesus, or you're called to love Jesus more than your people because Jesus is more valuable than your people. Now, what do I mean by your people? Well, in this sense, for, I think in this room, one of the best ways to describe this is like, think, who are the people, who are your people before, by faith, you are made new and born again, who are your people when, when you're not a Christian? Who are, who are your people when you, you have not trusted him and changed by the good news of Jesus? Versus who are your people on the other side of that? Who are now your people that quite literally we will spend eternity with? We will be with forever and ever because of Jesus. We've been reunited to the Father, restored to right communion because of Jesus. So think in those two categories. That might help you. Who are your people before you meet and know Jesus? And who are your people after you meet and know Jesus? And think in this way that you at least ought to have a category for what it means to love those people and know what it means to begin to live a life with and for and alongside those people and no longer those people. And Jesus is more valuable than those people. Jesus, in this sense, is calling him to abandon previous relationships. Now, this is provocative because if you, if you read it throughout the Old Testament, the, the picture of the love and care for and veneration of the father figure along the story of God's people is, is a theme that goes, it's in, it's in every story. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments is that we're called to honor our father and our mother. And it comes with a promise that, that, we might, that it might go well with us, as if to say, if you dishonor your father and your mother, there, there are going to be real and lasting consequences you might experience right here and now. 
And yet, even in light of the call to love and venerate and honor a father and a mother, Jesus begins to introduce for you and for me a category that we would love and honor and care for and, and, and follow Jesus and, and belong to his people more than at this point would have been the highest loyalty, the highest familiarity that they could have experienced. Because Jesus is more valuable than your people. What does this mean for us? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a few applications and we'll kind of begin to practically wrap this up in a way that I hope that will, that will leave you in some ways astonished and jarred by Jesus, but I want you to see the comfort that's written through the whole thing. If you were to describe in many ways the first person, this is his response to Jesus. And I believe for many of us in this room, we probably will likely identify more with one of those two people than the other, but it's possible you might identify with them both even the same day. But here's, if you were to, the gist of the first person, uh, the first person who, who came to Jesus and he said, hey man, you know, you think you want to follow me, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. Think of this person paraphrasing, if, I, if you'll allow me, saying, I will follow you, but I will take blank with me. And so I want to invite you to ponder as you hear Jesus calling you to give up everything, to follow and serve him, what's the one thing you're hoping he doesn't ask you to leave behind? Begin to ask yourself, if, if Jesus says, come with me, what's the, I mean, even if some, some, in some ways this, this is not helpful, but in some ways it might be like, I mean, quite uh, as explicitly as I can say it, if tonight, or right now, you were to leave, you were never going to go back home. You were never like you were going to leave everything behind you. You were never going to see any of the things that you own or possess. Like in your mind, what are the first few things that you do you find yourself going like, oh shoot, I need to take care of that thing? Or oh shoot, I need to make sure, hey, Jesus, can I go home and grab that thing? Right? And so we're meant to, in this provocative story, contemplate what this might be for us. What's the thing you're really, really, really hoping Jesus doesn't ask you to leave behind? There are other encounters with Jesus that people have, and the way I describe them, it's like the, the thing behind the back, right? When a, child, when a child has something they're not supposed to have, and they, they you know, kind of hide it, and they want to act, act suspiciously, and they are hiding it behind them, and, and, in, and in some strange way, that actually becomes, they're trying to hide it, and it becomes the most obvious thing, Right? Like, I wasn't even going to talk about that, but now you're acting so suspiciously. What is that thing? And Jesus has a profound way, because after all, he is the omniscience of God taking on flesh to see the thing that we're trying to hide. And in provocative style, astonishing style, we hear, to come to us and say, what's the thing that's behind your back? What are you holding on to? What's the thing that you say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I will take this with me? I, I'm not going to leave this. Now, similar to the second story, this first story, it's a good thing. Because after all, I think, I think part of us, even in, in religious circles, we would, you know, if, if you're, you can't live in the world and not kind of be connected to most religious circles and see how religious people tend to act. I think it makes sense for us to think like, oh, to become a follower of Jesus, to become a Christian, means to leave behind awful things, like sin, right? things that are rebellion against God, to leave, leave behind destructive or bad habits. 
leave behind things that are not helpful for you and for others, to leave those things behind. But notice, in neither of these stories does Jesus ask them to leave behind something sinful or awful. In fact, he asks them to leave behind the best things. He doesn't say just that sin and, and these awful things will keep you from, G, from, from experiencing life in him. Notice, he's a, a house. That's a good thing. Right? If there, if there ever is a gospel promise visible in the world, right, it, it's a house. Because it points to our rest in the Father. It's a, it's a common grace. It's a good thing. You would want to have something to cover your head in awful, in awful weather, right? And we of all people in the world know this. We live in a part of the world where you can't live without shelter. You, 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 you will die without shelter. And yet notice, he, he says that good thing. It's not that it's bad. It's that evidently you think you need it more than you need me. And therefore, you have missed, on who, you have missed out on who I really am. The fact that you want to take that with you shows you don't really know who I am. Same thing with the second story. In many ways, in the story of the Bible, venerating and caring for and, and loving a father figure has got to be one of, the, one of the highest virtues. But notice, he says, even the point he's making here is not just that, that awful things might keep us from experiencing new life and joy in Jesus. He's saying that even the very best things can be received by us in such a way that keep us from experiencing life in Jesus. So the, if the first person's like, I'll follow you, but i got to take this with me, Think of the second person, I paraphrase here, saying this, I'll follow you, but, I, but first I must fill in the blank. Sure, I'll follow you, but first I have to take care of X, Y, and Z. And again, Jesus is putting himself up, his own value, against not awful things, but the best possible things in our lives, the very best and look even in his words. It's as if he's looking for a way out. Lord, let me first go. It's as if he's, he's already looking for a way out. Now, this is important for us as we kind of think through what this meant. This was an Eastern, more communal society, a more familial society. We live in a, a, a Western, much, much more individualistic society. And so he was bucking the trends and the cultural expectations of the day to be willing to Love and trust Jesus over the demands and expectations of the community. Well, in a much more individualistic society that you and I live and are steeped in, I don't think it's a stretch to translate this, that while Jesus was asking this person to defy the, the norms and expectations of a communal system, today, if he were standing here, I think he would likely ask you and me to defy the expectations and norms of an individualistic system. Right, so in this sense... Right? For many of you, if Jesus asked you to give up your family, I bet there's a handful of you here where they're like, yes. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Right? That's why Disney keeps killing parents, right? To help kids begin to think like, oh, here's what it means to be an individual apart from your family. In fact, to help you think about that, we're going to make your worst fears come true. Parents dead. And then they've got to figure it out on their own. It's a really cool story, but it is a strictly Western and individualistic story, is it not? And deep down, it's the narrative you and I all believe. And so while this man had to, 
had to wrestle with this. Say, hey, first I have to tend to the expectations of my family. Now, some of you, that might, that might hit home. But for most of us, it's probably first I have to tend to my expectations of my own individuality. And Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. That's it. You cannot serve, he says, God and mammon or money. You can't love these things at the same time. And here he's saying, you can't love me and your stuff. You can't love me and your people. And I think he would even say to an individualistic crowd like us, you can't love and serve me and your self. A more Western, more individualistic society, I think, needs to defy not the societal norms of the family, although that might be the case for many of you. But Jesus is asking us to defy the societal norms of the self. I might put it this way. You can't love Jesus and your fill-in-the-blank identity. You will be subject to one or the other. You will either trust what Jesus says about you or you will not. You cannot serve Jesus. You can't love and worship Jesus and your own sexual identity. You can't love and worship Jesus and love and worship your own political identity. You can't love and worship Jesus and also love fill in the blank. And so for many of you, you're like, yeah, man, thanks, Jesus. Forget my parents. Jesus would probably say, no, 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 forget yourself. You have to love Jesus more than these. Now, that also, while that might help for some of you, but for many of us, maybe, maybe we're on the other end of the spectrum and this person represents us really well, and maybe you, you just love the idea of the nuclear family, right? That's you worship it. It's, it's their source of meaning. Um, and, and think Jesus is, is, is provoking us, isn't he? And so let me just even take this, you can't love the nuclear family more than you love Jesus. And so that means even in light of that, as we love Jesus, we begin to understand how we ought to then understand a place to lay our head, stuff, creature comforts, and even family or individuality. They are not, in that sense, inherently evil. They're not bad. It's just that they make lousy saviors. And Jesus is saying, leave these things. So let me speak even for the, for the parents. Like I, I, this is the way I, I talk about new parents all the time, uh, or especially couples who are like learning to deal with how are they going to get married and deal with their, now their in-laws. I mean, ugh, right, it's tough. And, and I just I always ask, this, like, hey, I want to help you love and care for these people, uh, but I also want you to just picture, if you have children and you fast forward 25 years, how do you want this conversation with their pastor to go? Just fast forward 25 years. And I'm sitting with, their, with like your children. Are you, are you as their parents a hindrance to following Jesus? Are you going to get in their way? Because th- this is the cool part is we get to speak not only to how we ourselves are going to let go of familial or even individual identity to find new identity in Christ, but also this, is, this gives a, a practical admonition for us, doesn't it? Of all the things you're teaching your children, is self-sacrifice near the top of the list? Oh, this is something, even in our own families, like, how, how can we be sure to not teach that acquiring and consuming is how we get happiness, but instead actually giving and sacrificing 
is the way, is the way of joy and delight. So, whatever the case may be, I'll give you a practical uh, wisdom in this. When you love Jesus more than that thing, you actually become free to enjoy and love that thing rightly. Just practically, this is, this is where, when I love Jesus and serve Jesus more than my wife, I actually become a much better husband. <laughs> I actually love her better. Because right? like, we're insecure and we want to say, like, what do you mean you love, you know, you can imagine a spouse being like, what do you mean you love Jesus more than me? And, and if you don't understand Jesus, that might sound, again, provocative, astonishing. But here's the thing, when I'm loving and giving myself to Jesus, I become humble, I become loving and sacrificial towards my wife. When I love her alone or, or these other things, right, family, when I'm more loyal to those things, I actually start, start treating them like a savior. And, and anyone who's been in a meaningful relationship knows this. When you're trying to get the thing from that person that you can only get from Jesus, you start to strangle each other to get it. Right? Spouse is going like, why won't you give me all the comfort and joy I need? And they're like, why won't you make me feel comfortable and at peace, Right? You become start doing that emotionally, relationally, and God help us, even physically. But when you have those things, when you can step into the relationship like this with a father or a mother or with your stuff and say, I don't need anything, Jesus has supplied it all. And then all these things, all of a sudden, they become really fun, become enjoyable. A spouse is just a spouse. <laughs> it's not your reason for living. Your children can just be children and not your means for validation. Your job can just be a job and not the source of your joy. I want to end with a a practical way of thinking about this. We look for joy and satisfaction in the wrong place. And even sometimes we look for joy and satisfaction in the best places. And things like this, like, like our comforts, like our home, which, again, I hope, hope people leverage that for, the case, for, for whatever, whatever makes them more fruitful in the world. But also, we're invited to consider how the global church might read this much different than you and I, aren't we? I tell the story often of when we got a chance to partner with church planters in western Nepal and eastern India uh, some, some 10 years ago, and I got to visit them, and they asked me to come teach the lead, their pastors and leaders and I was just listening to their stories, and they were telling these stories of how, like, multiple people had attended their own funeral because when they chose to follow Jesus, their family disowned them and held a funeral because they were now dead to them. And I know that might be the case for many of you. Maybe they didn't hold a, maybe your family didn't hold a funeral. Maybe your coworkers or friends didn't hold a funeral when you, when you became a Christian, but it's cost you. And around this room, I know many people are experiencing the joy of Jesus because they know the cost. Why is Jesus so stark here? I believe it's to offer something that we read in between the lines. Did you hear it? It says that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's introducing us to category one, that there is one who has come to give us all that we have longed for and hoped for. His name is Jesus. And the second category is this. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Just stop for a minute. Hear the hyperbole of Jesus' teaching. How good are dead bodies at burying other dead bodies? Right? Not possible. 
So what's he teaching us in this, in this exaggeration, this hyperbole? He's teaching us that to follow him is life, and to not follow him is death. And so while up to this point, this might have been like, this is difficult, right? I want you to wrestle with like, hey, what do I need to leave behind for Jesus? What, I, I want you to ask that. What's the thing that you need to leave behind for Jesus? What's the thing that's currently captivated your affections such that you love and trust and hope in it and not him? What's the thing that, that's a really bad savior? And, and you might be thinking like, well, I don't know if I really want to trade that. It's really good, right? It might be a, a, a father and mother. In fact, for some of you individualistic people, maybe, God is, maybe Jesus is calling you to go bury and care for your aging parents, right? But he's saying whatever the case may be, don't Expect that thing to give you the inheritance, the identity, the joy and delight that God alone can give. And so I want you to contemplate, what is that thing robbing you of joy? But I don't want you to think of it simply as trading something that you really like for something hard and awful, right? Like, I'm going to trade this thing I really love, and I'm going to get Jesus, and I'm going to be sad, and just gonna, I'm going to gut it out. No, I want you to realize that he's not calling you to trade something great for something difficult. He's tra- asking you to not be dead and to experience new life. That thing that you trust in that held these people, those were good things, but for whatever reason, for them, they were chains and they were a prison. So rethink how you look at these words. I can't, if you were to put this in, remember I gave you a paraphrase for each of these people, but now look at this. If you were to word this when you look at Jesus and say, I can't trust and follow you, Jesus. I am chained to, and I remember those things you had in that blank, put them there and see them for what they are, even though they might be good things. And I'm saying this even to our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who feel real despair and pain because they have taken on the name of Jesus. And yet I want to say to them and to you, those things, if you live for them and need them more than anything else, will be a prison for you. And I have good news for you. That while if we're honest, we look to Jesus and say, I can't follow you because I I need this thing. Jesus, I have a hard time following you. I can't follow you because I'm chained to my need for control. I'm chained to my need for people's approval. I'm chained to this habit this addiction. I'm chained to this way of thinking. And when you begin to think in those categories, now you realize what Jesus is offering. He's not offering something miserable in the place of your present joy. He's offering life in the place of the thing that is causing you and killing, causing you death and killing you. So here's what I would say. Here, how do we wrap this up? For, especially if you're in this room, maybe you're not a believer and you've heard everything I've said and you would say like, why on earth would I give up everything for Jesus? And I want to tell you, he's worth it. Why on earth would I lose all these things? I'm going to tell you, he's worth it. Because if you're in this room, especially if you're not a believer, or maybe you believe, but you, you, are, you are tied up, right? The, Jesus later says, these are the thorns of life that choke, the cares of life that choke us. You might ask a question that's profound. Who on earth would give up everything to obey God? Who on earth would even experience the severing of the relationship with their own father to obey God? And the answer to that question is our motivation for giving up all these things. Who would give up everything for a righteous and just cause to obey God? Jesus! 
Jesus did. Who would give up his own communion and presence with his Father to, to obey and to do that as which is good and righteous? Jesus did. Abandoned and forsaken even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friend, when he calls you to leave these things behind, he's not calling you to do something in your own, on your own, like by your own effort. Don't do that. Like if, if, if you leave going like, I'm going to do better. I'm going to start chopping things out of my life. Okay, sure. But think of it as like, Jesus came to chop death out of your life. Jesus came to separate you from the, the chains of sin. Jesus came to set you free. Jesus did all of these things, gave of himself so that you and I, being united to him by faith, if we were to turn to him and trust in him, he'll lead us through every single one of these things. Lastly, I'm going to just encourage you, like, this is, if this has felt hard, like, you're like, oh, I don't want to give up this thing. Um, if, you picture at, if you picture this as a, a, right, something you're chained to, then then it might help you to think in these categories. What if you were in a prison, a dark dungeon cell, chained to something, and Jesus walked in, kicked open the door and said, come and follow me. I bet you might all of a sudden, even things you'd been accustomed to, you might feel the tug. And so for many of you, if you feel that tug, that thing that's holding you back, I don't want you to feel shame or guilt. Two things, I want you to realize it's God's mercy that you would become aware of it. It's God's mercy, like, hey, Jesus is calling you out of that, and that, that tension you feel is actually something that's, that he's, he's helping you see, that you've become accustomed to and you didn't even know. But second of all, he's come into the dungeon to set you free. And if you feel that tug, I want you to know it's evidence that he has not abandoned you. That he, in fact, has done all that is needed to be done, and he will lead you out of that even if that thing, like these two stories, is a good thing. He has that which is best in mind for us. Let's pray together and thank him for that. Jesus, thank you so much that you, you have upheld and obeyed the righteous demands of the law. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have set us free from everything that holds us. We were, in many ways, the dead trying to bury our dead. We were those who were trying to find comfort in home, homes and in this world like foxes and birds of the air. And yet you in your mercy have come to give us new life, to give us a new vision for the things of our own lives. I pray that this morning if there's some in this room that maybe they wouldn't call themselves Christians or they wouldn't say they're believers or they're not sure, even now, might they, might they engage in a mysterious act of faith? Might they turn to you? Might they turn from their sin and look to you and consider the possibility that you really are the trustworthy and more valuable prize? That to have you is more glorious and life-giving than anything this world has to offer. Yet maybe for the rest of us, maybe we've heard this good news and we know what Jesus has done and yet we still cling to these things that have no possibility to give us life. Help us hear the words of the prophets that we would stop looking to empty, dry cisterns and wells to get water that you freely give without price. Help us see what you have done on our behalf. Help us be, to be willing to let go of the things that hold us so tightly in this life to experience a greater joy. 
Lastly, Lord, would you give comfort to those who feel the tug? <laughs> they feel chained by, by the things of this life. Give comfort and peace, maybe to some right now, who, who are contemplating professing faith in your son Jesus, but they really will lose something as a result. For those in this room, they, they might really lose relationships with friends and family. Would you give us the, the promise that the gospel of Mark tells us, as Jesus tells us, that there's no one who has given up all these things that ha- hasn't and won't receive a hundredfold in this life and the next. In places where they lose family, restore them and give them yourself and the church. In places where they've lost friends or comforts, restore them and replace those comforts with the Holy Spirit to advocate for them. Give comfort and peace to those who feel the tug of the chains that this life has. Remind us that you've come to set us loose from those things in a way that only you can. Bring that about now as we look to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.